You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. Uh, we're still doing our thing. We are still in First Samuel. We're uh, halfway through chapter 16. So last week I thought was really interesting just going over uh, David's anointing and kind of comparing that with Saul and uh, just where it came from. So I am... Well, and we... <laughs> I'm super excited to get in this next part because there is a ton of information here. I mean, it's a, it's oh a short goodness. passage, but it's just, it's packed with... Uh, <laughs> Stuff about music, stuff about spiritual warfare, stuff that, it's just weird, so. <laughs> yeah, well, and, you know, and that was the thing, whenever we started going through this and I began talking to other people, uh, particularly in the paddle store, about, you know, what their views and what their, their thoughts on this passage were, uh, it's amazing how many different ways you can approach this text. And so I really do, I, I think it's very... <sighs> There's just a lot of meat here, mm -hmm. and so I'm I'm excited to go over it because we're actually we're going to go through the text completely, and then we're going to go back and we're going to discuss what a liar is. Uh, that's a musical instrument, not a politician. L y r e, and, not l i a r. <laughs> exactly, and that way we're going to talk about um, the significance of that in the ancient world, and there's this wonderful history and then we're going to talk about some of the suggested ways to approach that the people in the paddle store brought up and we're going to go over uh, a few of those uh, not all of them because there's no way i could cover the entire conversation that happened there mm -hmm. and so um yeah i think this is going to be great but you know i think we left i fell asleep last... when i was reading that last <laughs> night and forgot to come back to it because it was <laughs> by the time i uh by the time i got home it was uh, you know for those of you who are in the paddle store you know uh, craig who we've uh, talk to you in there. He and I actually live mm -hmm. in the same town, so we went out to to kind of grab some drinks and chat for a while. So that was fun. Oh yeah, well, anytime you can get together with Craig, that's that's always a great thing. So I mean, yeah, you get to have good conversation. We okay, not to brag on ourselves too much, but we have excellent taste in friends. Just so <laughs> everyone knows, if if you know if you're our friend, then you're a pretty good person. Yeah. So, anyway. Now, yeah. No, I might question your taste in friends, not yours. But if you're friends with me, I might question your taste in friends. But um, this is true. Kind of a side note. Um, anyhow, I digress. Okay, so to to give us some context on on, on you know biblical friends, how's that for a segue? Um, we've got this. We've had this moment where where David and Samuel they've had their first encounter. And this is really their only encounter until you get over in chapter 19. And we kind of talked about maybe why some of the reasons that was, why, why wasn't uh, Samuel as much of a part of David's life as he was with Saul and why he may have held back some, because you really only find David and Samuel together here at this anointing. And then later when he's hiding from Saul, and he's already established, you know, David has established himself as a person who really doesn't need a whole lot of guidance or a whole lot of help. And, and David really doesn't need a prophet at all until he gets 
distracted in his kingship. And mm. then that's when Nathan comes on the scene, not you, but you know, the biblical Nathan. The, the prophet, so right. it, the prophet. Yeah. And now if you're looking in your Bible, uh, there's a divide usually between verses 13 and 14. And so there's a tendency to read everything in this passage or in this chapter before 13 as one story, and then everything from 14 on as another story. But remember, the original text did not have that division. There wasn't a nice little subheading in there to give you an idea of what's being spoken about. And it's really beneficial for us to keep the two verses together, 13 and 14. So I'm going to read 13 and 14 together so you can kind of get a feel for it. And it says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Samuel, and the harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul. So you have Saul. Sorry. No, it's okay. Saul. Make sure we're clear. Um, yeah, so you automatically have this contrast. Yeah. Well, in, uh, real it, quick, um, this is actually when I was listening, I actually uh, spent some time listening to it. And I think we've mentioned this before on the program, but uh, that's one of the best ways, I think, because you don't have, when they have the, when you're listening to it on the audio versions, they don't read all those little subheadings and things like that. There's not the break there. They just read it. And so one of the things I like about it is, you get to hear the full sentences, the way the sentences are structured, not how they're broken right. up in verses. Um, and, and stuff can kind of sneak up on you in a different way. And you're like, oh, wow, I, I hadn't put it together mm -hmm. in that, that way. So that's one of the things that I well, like. I would just want to throw that out there. If, you're, if you want to get away from having those you know, visual reminders get in the way, <laughs> you can always listen to it if you're good to just listen to, you know, some people don't, can't listen to the audio versions. They just kind of zone out with people to speak on the radio. I mean, I guess, or whatever device, radio. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, they probably aren't podcast listeners, so. Fair enough. This, yeah. This is good advice for them. And the, yeah, that, and that's the thing too, we should keep in mind, how we divide um, verses is also an act of interpretation. So those those divisions really can impact how you read a read a text. So you know, pay attention to them and, and try you know to read sometimes without them having in the, them in there. There and there are versions of the Bible that are printed that don't have them. So you actually are kind of forced to read it as a book and, mm -hmm. and not as the Bible. And you know, and I know we're always talking about Heiser, but one of the things he encourages people to do is to read the Bible as fiction. And to actually, and not to say that what's in there is fiction, but to put yourself in the story, just like you would with a fiction book and anticipate the things that are coming up and, and look forward to what's going to happen, to be looking for those clues that a writer puts in. And when we have those verse and chapter breaks, those are clues that the writer didn't include. These are something that somebody else has decided is appropriate. And yeah. It, and, and not to fault Heiser too much. I think, I think maybe if he said, read it like it's a novel. I think people might be <laughs> right. more receptive to the idea, but I think people have a knee-jerk reaction when they say, read it like fiction. <laughs> right. That's just not a word that. that, yeah, people aren't real comfortable with that word being applied to the Bible. And, you know, he's not talking about reading the contents as fiction. He's talking about a reading style. Yeah. And so that there's a d difference there. And I think if you listen to him in context, again, <laughs> everything goes back to context. Yep. You get that. But in this case, when you put those two together, these two verses, and you see that contrast, it really, this is the turning point 
this is where everything begins to, to change. And Block goes so far as to say it's the most significant turning point in the history of Israel and her monarchy, the transfer of divine authority and support from Saul to David. So he's putting a pretty high premium on this contrast right here. And Yeah, and one thing I want to, I think is interesting, uh, I just want to point out on the JPS, I'm not sure if you if you look at that, the translation I there didn't. it says it says the the um where is it the spirit of the Lord gripped David from that day on, and I thought that was kind of an interesting uh, take on that. I I need to actually look at the Hebrew on that because yeah it, it's but the idea is that this is an overwhelming defining moment uh, that David is not going to be able to escape the spirit of the Lord, whereas with Saul absolutely 100% a temporary event. Even him prophesying is a temporary event. And we have one more instance of that, by the way. And this is this passage really forces you to think about what it would have been like to be in Israel at this point, to have this kind of shift in leadership. Mm -hmm. I mean, now right now it's, it's still secret, but it, you know, obviously it's going to become public knowledge before too long. And so the, the writer, when he's writing this whole passage, doesn't give us a lot of explanatory material, and there's um, that's part of the reason why what we're getting ready to go into is so troubling. Uh, this passage has been misused and abused so often within the church context, and we're going to talk about some of those abuses. Uh, there's been misrepresentation, and so we're going to go through it slowly. So that we can really kind of pick it apart because I don't want anyone who hears us to think that, oh, well, you know, I can, there's no reason to think of this as anything other than what I've been taught before. I want them to think that we do have valid background and reasoning for what we're getting ready to present. And so the, the first 14b says a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him, or that's referring to Saul. Uh, a lot of translations have evil spirit from the Lord, uh, the harmful there is from the ESV. Mm -hmm. And of course, an evil spirit from God, Yahweh um, specifically, that's troubling. I, I must have an older ESV, and I think I've, we've commented on this before, but mine does say evil. Yours does? Yeah, yeah. In my, uh, so I must have an older ESV. Yeah, it, it the newer ones evidently say harmful, and I actually, uh, one of our members of the paddle store is... Uh, Dr. Vance, and he was the editor for uh, the reader's edition of the Hebrew Bible. Um, you know, he, he's brilliant when it comes to Hebrew, and uh, he's not giving me a grade, <laughs> so I can say all this because he's one of the uh, teachers at ORU when I was there. But, um, you know, I asked him about this, and he actually said that the ESV didn't have a great translation here because it really should have that punch of evil that it's not just harmful, it's more intense than that. Um, and, you know, the, the idea that God could use even a harmful spirit is troubling enough. The idea that God can use an evil spirit is um, very problematic for a lot of believers. And, you know, a lot of people feel like this puts this whole passage at odds with um, God's nature, particularly when we, we move forward to the New Testament, we start talking about you know, Jesus and his kindness and his love and his outreach. So if we, if we look at all this, we've got to put it into context of the day. So uh, the first problem we have to, to look at is what is this evil spirit? Mm -hmm. the, the, the 
thing that people read into the text that is absolutely not there is that they say it is a demon. It's not a demon. Uh, Carmen Imes, we got to talk to her a little bit about it. Uh, she has um, a great book out, or I'm assuming it's great because it's getting great feedback. And I've read some of her blogs and heard her interviews also in the Paddle Store. But she pointed out that the word for demon in Hebrew is not in this passage. Right. And so we can't just say, oh, well, it's demonic. No, when we do that, we're imposing our own worldview on this passage because the Bible very specifically says it's a spirit from Yahweh. And when in her comment, what I thought was interesting is the, the writer of Samuel actually clarifies that it's from Yahweh. But then when the servants are talking, they say it's a spirit of the Elohim, the gods. And so she, she pointed out, you know, that's one of the questions we have to ask. Where is the origin? So I think that, you know, the writer of Samuel actually uh, answers that, that it is from Yahweh. But I, I have to wonder, when we look at the, the servant's speech, are they even having a problem comprehending that God might be using this evil or harmful spirit? So the, that's the first point we have to clarify. Not a demon. We cannot go there. There is a Hebrew word for that. It's not used. So now that we've got that, you know, I can kind of hammer that home. The second problem is what does evil mean? Is, is this describing the nature of, of the spirit? Is it a spirit that is, you know, morally corrupt and, and ontologically bad? Or is it a, a spirit that um, does evil, a spirit that, that creates harm? Because it is the same construct as we find in Proverbs 24.1, and it's this, the same usage. And, and the English translates that there. It's not the same words, but like I said, same, same way the words are put together is men who do evil to others. Mm -hmm. So the idea that this is a spirit that does evil, and, and Block and Zamora both hold to that view that we're, we're not talking about uh, a morally corrupt uh, entity, that we are talking about something that whose actions are being described. And I, I think from what Dr. Vance said last night, that this is not just somebody, not something that causes harm. It is something that creates evil in a person's life yeah. and something that is so repugnant that you wouldn't want anything to do with it. Now, the third problem we have with this text is we forget the context. And the context is that of the Torah. And in, throughout the Torah, God does two things. He promises blessings to those who are obedient and those mm -hmm. who honor him and his mm -hmm. word and cursing to those who disobey and are in rebellion. You got to remember in Judaism, there's no dualism. Uh, it's so popular in Christianity today to think that God and Satan are locked into this battle and we know God's going to win, but man, it's going to be close. You right, know, right. It, it's, it's this this weird contradiction that we have going on in Judaism, there, there's not that conflict. God does everything. I create light. I create darkness. I, you know, I bring order. I create chaos. All of this is God's. And so they don't have this problem with the idea that God can use something evil to accomplish a good purpose because everything has to originate with him. And God is uh, constantly and consistently presented as being in control of all spiritual realities. For example, we can look at Deuteronomy 13, 2 and 4. This is where God takes credit for creating false prophets. 
He says he does that. And he says it's a test for the people. Are the people actually going to, to identify correct prophecy from evil or harmful prophecy? And yet God's saying he's the one who does it. Samuel, Second uh, Samuel 24, 1, God incites David to sin. Now, in First Chronicles I mean, it, 21, it states that Satan is the one who causes this. And we're going to talk more about that when we get to that passage. Mm-hmm. But Amos 3, 6, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? And we can look back at Judges 9.23 when God sends an evil spirit between Abimelech and the people of Shechem. Mm -hmm, 1 mm -hmm. Kings 22.19-22, God allows a lying spirit to be put in the mouths of the prophets so he can bring about Ahab's death. And then, of course, we have Job, where Hasetan, the Satan, the, the accuser, comes into the divine heavenly court. And has this discussion with God, and then the you know the fallout that that occurs there, where God is allowing things to happen, but at the same time He's setting boundaries and limits because He is ultimately in control. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot a lot of passages where you just kind of go, what is going on here? And especially if you especially if you do think of the like you said this whole idea that these evil spirits or whatnot are demons and that mm -hmm. then it just reinforces that dualism thing. And then you have a, then you add on the confusion even more. So if you assume that Satan is a demon, just another one of the demons, well, what's he doing right. in heaven? I thought they weren't there. They've been kicked out. <laughs> and so, and that's, you know, of course, I don't know if we're getting into this today, but you know, when we actually look at it, we're not talking about like Satan as, typically referred to and thought about in the New Testament context. We're talking right. about somebody who has a role in God's workings. So. Yes, and and, we'll, and we can even go back and look at Numbers, I believe it's 21 or 22, uh, where Balaam's donkey and the angel of the Lord, who we've talked about in previous episodes, is the embodied God showing himself within the Old Testament um, passages, mm -hmm. is called Hasitan. He's a Satan. He's an adversary. He he got in Balaam's way. Now, are we saying God is Satan? Absolutely not. I mean, now we're now we're getting into heresy. But we're saying that in this moment, he was that's he the was, role he's full. Of. Well, he's, he was. That's he was, a function. Yeah, he was functioning as an adversary to Balaam in that moment. So, right. Yeah. It's it, and mm -hmm. that's where that's where the language gets really hairy, and we have to <laughs> sort through it. You know, it it just takes time and and effort and study. Exactly. And, and and that's discipline. And, you know, all of us need to be, be using self-discipline or self-control, um, you know, one of the fruits of the Spirit to, to actually engage with Scripture and, and be okay with what it says. Now, if we were someone who ascribed to meticulous determination, we could just stop with what we're saying on this passage right there. Uh, mm -hmm. God did it. That's good enough. We, we don't have to, to worry about anything else. But I think if we stop there, we wind up with this very simplistic and shallow view of God. And it kind of makes humanity irrelevant to the, the whole scenario because we're just devalued to chess pieces that he manipulates. But sure. Saul was never manipulated into rebellion. He was never manipulated into disobedience. He was given the opportunity to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And he mm -hmm. never does that. And in refusing to do the right thing, he removes himself from the, the protection and the promises of the Torah. 
So Saul chose this. And the 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 fact that the writer introduces this section with, you know, the Spirit of the Lord departs from Saul, this is what opens that door. This is what allows that that evil presence to to have a reason and a right to be there. Because if God's there, then he is under that protection. And so whenever mm-hmm. David receives the Spirit of the Lord, Saul has it taken away. Now, what is going to inhabit that spiritual space in Saul's life other than something evil? Right. And so I uh, didn't mean to go here, but just, just to point out, when people ask me questions about spiritual warfare and um, demonic um, presence, one of the things I, I like to remind folks is just like the physical world abhors a vacuum, so, the, so does mm-hmm. the spiritual world. So if you don't want to sure. deal with evil spirits impacting your life, then you need to be engaging with God and mm-hmm. you need to be inviting him constantly to, to be in your presence. I mean, he already is, but to actually engage the fact that he's there. And so it, it, when we're focusing on, oh my gosh, there's an evil spirit and it's horrible and it's attacking me. Sometimes all we really need to do is shift our gaze. It, it really can be mm-hmm. that simple. So, um, you know, just a side note for anyone who might be, be dealing with that. But what's going on with Saul here is God, God is being consistent. This is not an inconsistent act on, on God's part. God is being consistent with who he revealed himself to be in the Torah. Mm-hmm. And he's basically said, you didn't obey me. You didn't do the right thing. So you don't get my protection. If, if God had not acted, then God would have been a liar. And so we, we have to recognize that particularly in the Old Testament, and I think there's, there's an element of this today, when you disobey, there, there is, there, there's punishment, there's discipline, and there's consequences. Mm-hmm. And we, we see that in the New Testament. Um, Paul picks up on the same principles when, when uh, he's talking to the, the people in uh, Corinth, and there's the man who's, I believe he's sleeping with his mother-in-law, and mm-hmm. uh, it's 1 mm-hmm. Corinthians 5. He says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit might, may be saved on the day of the Lord. Hebrews 12, 6 says, God chastises those he loves. And, and we have to remember, God did love Saul. God yeah. wanted Saul to succeed. And when we look at the fact that Samuel's grieving, and we, we talked about this, you know, the prophets, part of their job is to experience what God's experiencing, to, to feel what God's, God is feeling. And, and Samuel is devastated by this. And I think in that we're seeing an echo of God's heart, that he didn't want Saul to, to, to fail this way. And so, you know, this idea that discipline is love, we, it's throughout the scriptures. And we can look at Deuteronomy 8, 5 through 6, Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, Psalms 94, 12 through 14. So if you're not being disciplined by God, you know, you, you have to ask, where are you in relationship? What, what are you doing? Uh, and because there are times where, where God is going to manifest that love through discipline. I mean, it's not, it's not all, you know, constant. It's not, oh, woe is me all the time. And look, look at me being a martyr or, you know, masochistic in well, my yeah, view of be, God. Yeah, because, I mean, you can take that, well, I mean, anything you take out of balance with the rest of Scripture is going to turn into a bad theology and a bad way of living. Because there is, I mean, there there, there is kind of a, 
a tendency in certain groups to uh to to put on display how bad their life is as as evidence of their faith. Oh yeah. And Oh yeah. I mean, it, it's that's not how it works. It's it's not like well, you know, there's and there's certain there's there's a few different things that this gets done with, you know, it's um, you know, for example, there's certain groups that they say you know when Jesus says we're going to be persecuted and people are going to hate us, they're like <laughs> well, people people hate me, so I must be doing the right thing, or 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 or, or you know, yeah. Paul talking about the the cross being foolishness uh, to the unregenerate people. Is then you have people putting together these terrible theologies that make no sense, and they're like, "Well, see, you you just I my theology doesn't make <laughs> sense to you, so I must be regenerate." You know. <laughs> And it's like, no, yeah, it's, which, it's, that's not how the equation works. It doesn't, it's not, it's not that simple. Well, now we're just being Gnostics. And so, you know, that, there's a whole problem with that. And we won't yeah. go there today, but we'll, yeah. we'll talk about it later. It, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that's the thing. And this is why you have to hold all of this intention. And you've got to have, you know, all the pieces on the, of the puzzle on the board, you, you know, you you may not always see how they fit together, but if you keep working at them long enough, you're going to see how enough fit together to give you a balanced view. Mm-hmm. And so this is the reason why I'm always like steady, 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 because a very simplistic approach to scripture won't get you the depth and the richness of, of how all this works. Mm-hmm. And so I, and I really, I've seen so many people who, who haven't had that chance to study, and the first time they encounter someone who presents a logical argument, and maybe missing some bits and pieces of context, that that logical argument just unravels their faith. Mm-hmm. And so that's the reason why we need to be diligent in sharing and teaching so that people can have a faith that, that's strong enough to be questioned. And they have seen the Bible bear out as true more often than not, so that when they come up even against those things they don't understand or that they don't have answers for, they can in faith say, I can, I can examine this. I, I can go deeper because I know that God's going to be true and faithful and be okay in that, in that time of not knowing until they can find the, the answers in scripture and community, having those discussions. And so anyway, yeah, uh, just everybody knows we're all about the study. So anyhow, yeah. <laughs> back, yeah. to, back to Saul and Samuel. So uh, verse 15, and Saul's servant said to him, behold, now a harmful spirit from God. And this is where they're using that word Elohim and, and where Carmen raised that great point. Are we talking about, uh, you know, Yahweh or the other gods? Uh, I, I kind of makes me wonder if they're having an issue here. But well, they said a harmful spirit. Good. Well, I, I was wondering, are they are they trying to are they trying to assume that the other gods are oppressing the, the their king. Well, it would make sense in that context. I hadn't thought of it that way, but it would totally make sense in that context. I mean, because remember, wars weren't fought between kingdoms and kings. They were fought between gods. Yeah. And who represents the gods? Well, the king does. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I can definitely see a place for that. I, I don't know if I can completely go there, but at the same time, I think it, it would open the door for some interesting speculation. That we we could have some fun with. Yeah, well, so, I mean, but it would make sense to me for them to think that you know, well, our king, that you know, maybe the other gods are are tired of of losing battles, <laughs> that they're just going to send a spirit directly to the king. 
So yeah, uh, and we're good. Well, again, and we're speculation. Get... I I don't know on that one. Yeah, well, we're going to talk about some of the, how that plays in um, a little later, and we can probably you know re you know touch on that idea again uh, pretty quick. So anyhow, they say a harmful spirit of the Lord is tormenting you. Let our Lord now uh, command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre, and when the harmful spirit of the Lord is uh, from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So we're going to go into why it's significant that the servant specifically plays a lyre. This is not a harp. Uh, we're going to talk about why this particular instrument is significant. Um, but you may have to tune in next week for that. We'll see. And so, but notice Saul has to be told again what's happening. The servants have to explain to him, hey, this is what's going on. It's a harmful spirit. You aren't just in a bad mood. There's something deeper at the root of this. And, you know, we've talked about this before. And Samuel, anytime the leadership has to be told what's going on, it's not a good thing. And so Saul is not only told what's happening, he said he's being told what the remedy is. Mm -hmm. And now, now we, we still don't know exactly how old Saul is at this time. No. We and, don't. Uh, I mean, I, I do question, and this is, I don't know if it's just me trying to rationalize something in a more physical term, right? I do kind of wonder, based on some of his behavior, it's like, did he have like some kind of early onset dementia going on? <laughs> uh, did he, did, or, or did he have, I mean, of course, there's also the possibility of uh, anxiety uh, affects memory, mm -hmm. uh, you know, just things like that as, I, as I'm going through this, because he does seem to be confused about things. Uh, very many times he's confused about things. And we're actually going to talk about what this may possibly be uh, in, in those terms. Is this organic? Is this spiritual? Is it a combination? So we're, we're going to come back to that. Okay. Because uh, that, that is a, no, it's a good point because, um, again, someplace that a lot of Christians have fallen off the deep end on. But notice what his servants don't say. Uh, sometimes what the Bible doesn't include is just as important as what's on the page. And they don't tell him, hey, you need to repent. You need to talk to God and ask for his mercy. You've got mm -hmm. to repair this breach in the relationship that's been created. They they tell him, hey, we're going to manage the symptoms is pretty much what it what's going on. Hmm. I mean, they, they aren't they aren't friends. They aren't looking for his restoration. They aren't looking for his healing, they're just looking for the a way to make life bearable. Yeah, and yeah. How do we not get yelled at at work? Can we figure that out? That would be great. <laughs> well, how do we not have a spear thrown at us whenever you're in one of these moods? Uh, you know, because being king, he gets in a bad mood. Saul could just, you know, off with their heads. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and nobody's going to stop him. And so I, I thought it was very interesting that nobody is is telling him, hey, You've got to get back in that place where you're supposed to be as God's representative. Um, and I don't think they, they really thought that was possible. I mean, to use a, a modern term, he's a lame duck king. Yeah. They, they, they already know he's not going to be the one on the throne. His son's not going to be the one on the throne. He's been completely denounced. And so they're just kind of bearing with him until the new king arrives. And so this leads to some interesting speculation for when David does appear. So 
verse 17 and 18, Saul agrees and, and he tells them, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. Now, that, that word there, remember back earlier in the chapter, this is from last week, when God says, I've provided for myself a king, mm-hmm. it, it's that same word, see, see for me a man who can play well, and, or a man who can play tov, and you know, bring him to me, take him. It's not the same word in Hebrew, but the same idea, take him, bring him to me. And so we have that, once again, that connection right back to Genesis 3 and Genesis 6. You're the seeing, the good, and the taking. And I, I think it's interesting that the, the methodology for relief here is to act like one of the sons of God in Genesis 6, and it's to act like Eve when she's confronted with the, the fruit in the garden. Hmm. And so, you know, Saul's friends, once again, they aren't giving him great advice, but he's following it. And that's going to get him into even more trouble. He just doesn't realize that this trouble he's getting into is part of God's plan. So verse 18, one of the um, men answered. And so when this man answers traditionally, again, when we say traditionally, not supported by scripture, but traditionally, this is believed to be Doeg. Uh, Doeg appears later on in Samuel. He's in chapters 21 and 22, and he's an Edomite. And he basically snitches David out to Saul. And, and the rabbis claim that what he's getting ready to say was specifically to plant seeds of jealousy in Saul's mind against David. Hmm. Now, others have suggested that this is to bring David into the castle, that this is kind of a covert plan to get him closer to the throne. Uh, Bergen claims that this is a case of the servant outwitting Saul, and he classifies the speaker as an adversary to Saul. I think both cases kind of overstate what we can prove from the text. Mm-hmm. However, th- there is something going on with his speech because it, it will just... He goes into this list of things that David is. Um, in verse 18, he says, Behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, love that word, who is yeah. skillful in playing, a man of war, a man of valor, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Why the oversell? We want a court musician. Why does he need to be all these other things? What... There, there's really no point in attempting to convince Saul about all these other great attributes David has when all Saul wants is somebody who can play him a song. Yeah. And well, I mean, it, it would make sense. I mean, especially, I mean, if if their perspective, I mean, I, I realize they don't have all the, they don't have a narrator telling them the spirit of the Lord mm-hmm. has left Saul. But, right. It, you know, maybe Saul is the point where maybe he, feels and has, you know, has stated that he feels that the spirit of the Lord has left him. And so it mm-hmm. makes sense that, hey, maybe if we can get somebody in here who God is with, then maybe right. Saul, uh, you know, being in the, so to speak, in the divine presence can, mm-hmm. can reconnect with God. So, I mean, there, that's, that's what I would think if that's what the, again, the oversell there is. Well, and we do have some indication that they would have been aware of because Samuel's left. Samuel left Saul and they, that was it. There's only going to be one other, mm-hmm. one other time that Saul and Samuel come into any kind of 
contact. And even then, how much that contact was is kind of iffy. And it's in that chapter 19. And that's when Samuel and David are together again. So very interesting story that I can't wait to get into. But the fact that the prophet, the one who speaks on behalf of God, is no longer present, uh, I, I think that's, that is a tip-off. And I mean, mm -hmm. because why else would he be gone except for God says, I'm going to remove my voice from this situation. But the words here, oh my gosh, when I started breaking them down, I, I, I got so excited because there is so much packed into these words, this description. Uh, and before I go there, I should mention one of the things that could be happening, the writer could actually be putting these words in the mouth of the servant to give us a really good introduction to David. Because remember, the, our introduction to David in, previously in this chapter is it's about how he looks. Mm -hmm. That's really mm -hmm. about all we know. So now we need to know more about what his character is. You know, who is he as a person besides the fact he's good looking and reminds Sam, uh, Samuel of Esau? Mm -hmm. So I started pulling these words apart and you're, oh my gosh. Okay. So he's skillful in playing the liar. Okay. That's the first thing that he's described as. And that word there, yode, it, it's to know. It's a descriptor that's applied to Bezalel. It's a descriptor used of prophets. Hmm. And also it's a descriptor used of God, <clears throat> excuse me, of God when he is creator. Uh, and the word there, it denotes the ability to manipulate something into a desired form. And it, it, it has the connotation of, of intimacy with whatever this person is working with. This is why it's used of sexual relationships that you, you yada, you know your spouse. Right. And it, it also carries with it this idea of supernatural knowledge. So it's not something that you're you can just know because you've got eyes and can look at something, but that you are so intimately connected. You see not just what it represents on the physical realm, but how it connects to those spiritual truths. And this is how David is being described. And it's being, uh, like I said, it's connected back to Bezalel and Rashi. When Rashi comments on Bezalel, he says that this is the Holy spirit giving inspiration. That's how he mm -hmm. interprets this quality. And Heschel uh, points out that to know something in the biblical context is to care about something, to have great affection and regard for. So I thought that was very interesting. He's a man of valor, literally a, a Gabor Kahil. So a mighty man of valor. So once again, we're connected back to that Genesis 6 passage. Mm -hmm. And it foreshadows Saul's exception uh, of acceptance. Sorry. <laughs> combined a couple of words there, acceptance of David, because we already know that this is what Saul does. Saul takes men of valor. He takes the Gibor, he takes the Kiel, and he, he makes them uh, be a part of, of his army. And that was in chapter 14, verse 52. <clears throat> David's a man of war. This is a, a description that God uses of himself in Exodus 15, 3. God says, I'm, you know, he's a man of war. And this is right after crossing the Red Sea. Uh, he's prudent in speech. Uh, literally, it's the word there is discerning. It, it's uh, vain. Uh, the, the, the root word of another word, tebinah, which is uh, also used of Bezalel, understanding. Understanding is the second attribute applied to Bezalel in Genesis 30, um, 31 and 36. Hmm. And this 
connotes the 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 that understanding is the means by which knowledge is revealed to the people. So you can be as wise as, and smart as you want to be if you don't have the ability to express it, to get it out into people's, uh, you know, their minds, their hands, their eyes, and, and, and to, to participate in it, then what's the point? So right. this is that, that kind of intermediary gift that, that allows those who have the ability to, to know the, the uh, spiritual realm as you know, the first uh, descriptor implies, now they can actually bring it out of that abstract place and put it into the world in a form that people can participate in. So he's handsome. And, you know, of course, we talked about this some last week. Um, it's used to describe Joseph and Rachel, but it's also used to describe Gideon's brothers in Judges 8.18. They were men who looked like kings. So David is being acknowledged as looking like a king even before he gets to Saul's court. Talk about a setup. Yeah. It's right there. So I'm like, wow, that that's pretty amazing. Yeah, and, but then we're very interesting. Oh yeah. Well, and and then we're told that finally the reason why he he possesses all these attributes is because the Lord is with him, and. There's kind of this subtle little jab in there almost. The Lord's with him, but he's not with you. Um, right. not, not really what you want to say to your king who's having a bad day. Uh, but it, it does explain that this is why David has these, these attributes. And in Exodus 31.3, God specifically says, I have filled him, Bezalel, with the Spirit of God. So the, again, mm. we have this shared connection. Now, this connection is not incidental. It, it actually has some bearing, and it, it's a foreshadowing of who David is. Because you have to remember, Bezalel, he's the one who builds the tabernacle. He's the one that creates the Ark of mm -hmm. the Covenant. He's the one who makes all of these things that we associate even today with God's divine presence and power. And, you know, this is the reason why there's so many... Uh, allusions to it in in modern mythology you know we got indiana jones in the last crusade or mm. and we've got uh, um the king solomon's minds and, and movies like that and there's so much speculation still going on to on today about these these items because they were so powerful and they did leave this impact i mean on the human psyche as a whole uh -huh. it seems well it, but real did, quick and this real quick this is just a side note about the the bezel bezel thing um, it's it's funny to me that there's there's so many places in the Bible where it says and God told Moses how to how to build these things mm -hmm. and there's all these lengthy descriptions and then you get to Bezalel and God's like you know what just have him do it he knows <laughs> yeah yeah well and that honestly there's some really <laughs> there's some great rabbinic stories about that and <laughs> but that that's just always kind of cracked me up because it's like. There's, he, he's very specific on all these things to Moses, and it's like, make sure it gets done this way and this way. And then when he gets to instructions for Bezalel, he's like, you know what? It, Bezalel can do it. Yeah, my spirit's in him. Just forget it. You got it. <laughs> well, you, there, there's actually so, a, a, a story in the Talmud about uh, God trying to show Moses how to build the candlestick that goes in, in the tabernacle. And God tries and tries and tries to get Moses to get it. And Moses is just, he's confused the entire time. And finally, God does just pretty much that in the story. Oh, my gosh. I, Bezalel's got it. 
I, yeah. I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't think that was necessarily a unique reading uh, to me, but I didn't expect it to be like a, an actual Talmudic uh, story. That's pretty funny. Well, and, and I, I think that's one of the cool things about, the, about that story is God gives Moses the words to describe the process. And so Moses records it. But mm -hmm. when it comes to actually executing it, it's Bezalel who does it. And um, there's a great book um, from Bezalel to Maplethorpe uh, by Edward Faith that I, I really enjoyed. I disagreed with some of his conclusions, but a good book. And um, he, he says there's no room for, for any addition by the artist, that it has to be exactly as God describes it, that there's no room for, for interpretation on the part of the artist. And that... The, the specifics of how to build a tabernacle and create the ark are so entrenched in the, the descriptions given to Moses that it precludes anything like the artist, you know, expressing themselves. Uh, in the work, yeah. See, which, and I, I, I don't, I don't think I can go there. I don't think I can follow that. It doesn't. Seem I, I can't either. And, and the, um, oh, I had something. Oh, well, and, and I've heard that same kind of argument actually put in, uh, against um, saying that Moses was actually doing a bad thing whenever uh, Jethro tells him to appoint all the judges. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I've, I've heard that, that that kind of argument, well, God didn't tell Moses to do this, so it was a bad thing to do. Um, and, and, right. the, and they actually, I've heard that, and I don't know if you've mentioned it, but I, I've heard somewhere that that line of reasoning has actually been used to explain why the judges period was so bad. Yeah, it, it has been, which is kind of ridiculous. And as far as like uh, Bezalel, one of the things that I have to ask as an artist, then how did he know what shade of blue, you know, mm -hmm. uh, how, how, how exactly do you make the turn of a cherub wing? You know, what, what's the texture of the feathers? There's so many details that are left out of Moses' description mm -hmm. that unless you're an artist trying to recreate it, you know, even just in your mind, you aren't going to see it. And I realize the minutia is overwhelming for a lot of people, but for an artist, I'm sitting here going, there's so many holes. I wouldn't even mm -hmm. know where to begin to, to step in with my, with my own ability and talent. And, and that would be terrifying. And I can't imagine what it would be like to be Bezalel. Uh, but anyway, I, for those of you who may have missed it, Bezalel was one of the primary uh, figures in my, in my thesis. So I, I I love everything that has to do with him because he is such a fascinating character in the Bible who has so little written about him. Mm -hmm. But when, when we look at his role there to, to create the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant, then look at David. What's David do? David locates the place where the temple is going to be. He, he starts amassing the materials for the temple to be built. Now, he doesn't get to build it himself, but uh, he makes that first big leap into mm -hmm. constructing the final place of worship. He's the one who returns the Ark of the Covenant to the nation. Mm -hmm. And so they have this shared role. And this is part of the reason why they're connected specifically through these words. So Saul sends for David, verse 19. And then in verse 20, Jesse sends David with a donkey that's laden with bread, wine, and he's got a goat. And he sends his son to Saul. Now, this is a great verse. Uh, this, is, this one's fun to play with. because. First of all, I think it connects us back to Hannah, who sends okay. Samuel to Eli with the wine and the flour and the bulls. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so we've got that, that connection to the past. But then I also think it connects us to Jesus. And I say that because Jesus is the bread of life. 
whenever we talk about the Holy Spirit, one of the symbols, uh, one of the primary symbols for the Holy Spirit is wine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Jesus is sent by the Father to serve and mm-hmm. to confront the earthly authorities. And he, and he and, comes on the scene on a donkey. And he comes on the scene on a donkey, and he's not recognized at first, just like David's not recognized at first. And so I, I love that picture because both of them going to serve the king in, in order to, to bring God's presence into the, that, that realm. With David's the courtroom, with Jesus, it's the world. Mm-hmm. And so I think, I think we see some really specific foreshadowing in this verse. And I don't think we're having to reach too far in order to, to try to impose a type on this. I think it's just there. Yeah. So verse I 21. Totally missed that. <laughs> I can't believe I missed that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, sometimes you, you just, you read the long and all of a sudden something will pop out and you're like, Oh my goodness. And you know, it, it's got to be God kind of bringing things to mind because, you know, some of the things I find my, in my notes after I write them down and lay them aside, I'm like, am I that smart? I don't think I'm that smart. So <laughs> yeah. I, I understand. <laughs> so I, I feel that way so. a lot about myself. Anyway. Um. <laughs> oh, okay. No, I didn't assume anything different. I know. <laughs> All right. Let's get, let's get so, back to it. Sorry. We'll, we'll so stop verse each other. <laughs> Oh, those were, that was insulting each other? Yeah. Folks yeah, aren't those, ready for the real thing. Those, those, <laughs> so, the, the, well, the minor. Uh, yeah, yeah no. All right, verse 21. David came to Saul and entered into his service, and Saul loved him greatly, and David became Saul's armor bearer. Uh, David, everyone's going to love David. Uh, Saul's initial response is to love David. And he he thinks very highly of David, and, and it's really evidenced in that little flew there, he became an armor bearer. Uh, remember back to the story of Jonathan and his armor bearer. And, you know, they get ready to, Jonathan get re- gets ready to go into battle and the armor bearer says, I'm with you like your heart is with you. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's to be in that position is to be in one of the most trusted positions anybody could be in. And so this was a very high honor. And, and this shows you the, the amount of affection that, that Saul had or David, and Saul loves him so much that he sends message back to Jesse and says, let, let him stay. And the scripture tells us that David finds favor in, um, in Saul's eyes. And I think it's very interesting because the suffering always loved the anointed at first. At least in the very beginning, the, the presence of the anointed is celebrated and it, it, they, they find relief and beauty in it. Um, but many times there is this, um, it kind of devolves and that's Mm -hmm. exactly what's going to happen with, with, uh, Saul and David. So verse 23, whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took up the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. And there's a lot of wordplay going on here because, uh, David, who has been described as the Gabor Khil, that mighty man of valor. He's going to take now, he's going to take the liar so that Saul can be good. And notice that reversal there. So Saul can be well, he can be tov. And hmm. David is first seen of God. So he, he, he's provided this scene and it's fitting for one who's going to be king to be seen by God. And Saul asked that 
a musician should be seen for him to stop the spirit. So David is described as good, as Tov, and Saul becomes Tov when he's in the presence of David. Um, Samuel takes the oil. David takes the lyre. The, the, these are instruments of change. And, and we see, you know, how Saul, and we talked about how Samuel, when he anointed David, that was kind of the activating um, symbol for that time, that you activated sacred things and people by anointing them with oil. Now, David, he activates God's presence by using this instrument. And we're going to talk more about that in it's going to be the next episode because there's no way we're going to have time to get into it today. Sure. But Saul becomes well in David's presence, that Tove. And so we've got that really interesting callback, Genesis 6 and the Genesis 3. And remember, Genesis 3 has been one of the defining stories for Saul all the way along. Mm-hmm. And he, he's, he's been tormented by a, 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 an evil spirit. And, and this is one of the reasons why I think Dr. Vance was so right in saying that it's so much more than just harmful. It is evil because his desire is to be Tov. And when we connect those together back to Genesis 3, that, that foundational story that's been such a part of this, um, we have that connection in Genesis 3 with the, with the, um, the fruit from the tree, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and those being connected. And so the, the tree itself, the, the fruit, I'm sorry, of the uh, tree is the, the fruit of uh, Tov Vera. So you've got those two words back together. Mm-hmm. And I think, now, this is, this is me speculating, okay? I want to be very, very, very clear here. This is me speculating. I think this is De- uh, Saul's final chance. Now, I'm not saying this is his final chance to reclaim the kingdom. That, that door is closed. But I think it's his final chance to be confronted with the power and the mercy of God. And, and I think this evil spirit is kind of the taste of God's wrath and what judgment looks like and, and reason to change, especially when we look forward to what Paul mm-hmm. says in, in 1 Corinthians. And when David comes in and he's carrying the spirit of the Lord, now Saul has laying right before him these two very different choices. And we're back to Joshua, you know, choose this day, who are you going to serve? And I, I think that God is really attempting to, to make it so clear to Saul that this is the choice. It, it is a choice between good and evil. Mm-hmm. And, and what we find in the Bible, you know, David's taken by Saul. And, and the thing is, in the Bible, you take to know. So, uh, so often, whenever you find somebody taking something, it, it's for the purpose of knowing something. And so we can see that in, in the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We can see that in Genesis 6. We can see even with um, Sarah and Pharaoh or Sarah and Abimelech, either one, pick whichever story or both. You know, the, the purpose there was to yada, to, to know her, to have a, a sexual relationship with her. And so mm-hmm. this, this idea of taking to, to know, this is, this is kind of a, a consistent theme throughout the Bible. And we can even look forward to Jesus, you know, whenever he takes the bread, he breaks the bread, he blesses the bread. Uh, And why are we Mm -hmm. doing that? So that we can participate and we can know, we can have intimate knowledge of of his life, death, and resurrection. And so I think what we're really seeing here is is Saul's final chance and this final chance to to confront good and evil in his own life and, and to 
it's also so people can see that Saul is without excuse. There, there's right. no reason in the world for him to continue making the decisions because from here on out, every decision Saul's going to make is going to be governed by paranoia. I, mm-hmm. it, it's it's going to be his own mind just, uh, well, some of it's his own, his own mind, some of it's this evil spirit that that everybody's out to get him and mm-hmm. he allows himself to be ruled by fear and jealousy. And, and what I think is very interesting that it's in the midst of being taken that David, David goes with it. He, he, he serves, he, he shows goodness and he serves, shows mercy and compassion for Saul that he loves. And that's the thing that we should not forget through all of this. And this is another major point. David loves Saul. And we find that very clearly whenever we get to Saul's death and the lament that David sings over Saul in that death. Mm-hmm. And so not just Jonathan, but Saul himself. And so I think we've, we've, we see this little microcosm of the totality of Scripture kind of being brought into the story of David and Saul. And this is where it begins to play out. Yeah. So, but I think... I think that's all I have on this part for this week, because when we get into the, the next part, we're, we're going to be a while. Yeah, well, and I actually, I was, as we we're going through that, I, I was, and I've wondered this too, because you were talking about this kind of being Saul's last chance at um, participating with God, basically, is mm-hmm. I think is, is the, a good summary of, of how you stated it. Um, but I do kind of wonder if David was uh, serving well, knowing that he had been anointed to be the new king, wondering if it was going to come to a point where there would have been a succession time that Saul could have peacefully participated in, and that he and his family could have continued to be blessed, not in the kingship, but as members of the, of, of the family of Israel. I hadn't yeah. considered that, but that's a really good point because, he, yeah, if he would have restored the relationship at this point, what, what, how different would history have looked? Yeah. And, and, and also, I mean, at that point, I mean, because, I mean, you can, you can play a hundred different scenarios and you know, mm-hmm. butterfly, you know, <laughs> right. Of, of this. But I, I do wonder about that is, is how much more effective could David have been as a king had Saul continued to to serve God faithfully and and handed things over to David uh, rather mm-hmm. than rather than David having to go into battle with him later and take them from him. Yeah, well, and I think that that's very interesting. You brought up a good point. Uh, David never actually fights Saul for the throne. He he waits with patient assurance that God will fulfill His word. And uh, and once again proves that he is the one who's going to make a great king, and so I think this is uh, for Saul. This is a time where he could personally move forward, and I I think this would have been a very uh, an event that would have affected his personal well being more so than the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Uh, although being king, it couldn't help but have ramifications. But also, I think that. By allowing him to walk through this, God is showing the people this is why he can't stay on the throne. Sure. If he's not with me, if he's not filled with my spirit, then this is what you have to deal with. And mm-hmm. this is who you really want to, to lead your nation. 
and you know Saul becomes dangerous to to everyone who's around him because he refuses to repent and submit himself to God. And you know, I think if you've walked with God for very long, been a Christian for for very long, you're going to encounter those people who've known the Lord and they have you know, they they've allowed sin to become the defining element in their life and they become dangerous and they become toxic and you know that's it's a dangerous thing to be around them so you know this isn't something that's just happening in the bible this is something that still happens today and Mm -hmm. uh but i i saying that when we get ready to move into that next section i told you we're going to talk about some things that people in the paddle store brought up when we move into that next section um there is a very interesting point that's brought up that that is on display in this passage that is easily overlooked. Saul's never abandoned. He he's never left. David sticks with him. His friends stick with him. His advisors stick with him. He's never left alone. So when I say there's toxic people and and who can, you know, through whatever circumstances, the sin in their life, the rebellion in their life, and they become toxic. That's not an excuse to abandon them. Uh, that's not an excuse to to just move away from them until God says, "Hey, this now is time." And you know, right. David's going to have a point where he's got to where he's going to have to to move away uh, from Saul for his own self preservation. But we need to be sensitive to when that time is, and we that's the reason why we have got to be in relationship with the Father, and we can't just be making these um, decisions on some kind of you know checklist. That's that's sure. not what it's about. Yeah. So. I just wanted to clarify that because I didn't even think, oh, well, she said toxic people. We need to stay away from toxic. You know, sometimes toxic people, they're the ones who need love and kindness more than anybody else. So, um, but be wise. That's yeah. the reason why we have balance. Yeah, and, so. and, I, and I'm guessing we'll, I'm guessing we'll get more into that next week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just didn't want somebody to tune into this as one episode and, and, and you know, there's yeah. more. There's yeah. Come there's, back. <laughs> yeah, there's much more. I mean, there's always going to be more. Where it's the Bible, I mean, like it's yes. like we're going to run out of stuff to talk about, right? <laughs> I I don't see that happening anytime soon. Hey, I ordered new books. I ordered mm-hmm. like six new books. So I mean, I haven't even cracked those, and that's just to help me finish getting through Samuel. And so that's going to bring us up to a total of like ten books that we're going to be using for the series. So yeah, 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 great. Hanging out with those, <laughs> hanging out with all your those scholarly works. It's going to be a lot of fun exactly. times. We need a so, bigger house. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think if that, could, I, I think that's true. If that's true of anyone, it's true of you. I mean, but mainly because you live in a camper. So yeah, yeah, not a lot of bookshelves and campers. So <laughs> right. So um, well, everyone, uh, I think that's a great spot to break. Uh, thank you so much for being part of the show. If you want to uh, be part of the conversation, I hit us up on Raven Creek SC on all the social media. Um, Find us at ravencreeksc.com, and uh, we'll be back doing this next week. And until then, uh, if you want to be part of it, find us there, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.